0: Good morning. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but Joe's teacher voice made me nervous when she told him to slow down going out. (laughs) Took me back to third grade. I don't know what it was. I want to ask her if it's okay if I come up or what. So, um, an important key theme, if not the key theme of 1 Peter... Has to do with the reality and the role of suffering in the life of the Christian. The reality and the role of suffering in the life of the Christian. If we are human, we will suffer. Author Alan Noble says human existence inescapably involves suffering. Is everybody cheered up now? Human existence inescapably involves suffering. And if we follow Jesus, that suffering can be used by God for our good, for our spiritual formation, and even for the good of those who may cause our suffering. Suffering has a role to play. We've already encountered several forms of suffering in 1 Peter. The suffering of enslaved people under unjust masters. The suffering of wives married to unbelieving husbands. The suffering of Christians maligned and abused and misunderstood by unbelieving friends all under the watchful eye and the mounting suspicion of the Roman Empire. We all deal with suffering to one degree or another. We we live on an imperfect planet, among imperfect and sometimes evil people, and alas, we too are imperfect. And all of these things and many others can cause suffering. Now, we, we may not suffer persecution, and we don't, I would say, we may not suffer persecution to the extent these early followers of Jesus did in 1 Peter, but we, we do have sisters and brothers around the world who suffer this kind of persecution and worse even today. So without any intention of watering down this idea of suffering as Peter presents it, the truth is, we can suffer from a wide spectrum of suffering. We can experience a wide spectrum of suffering. Health issues, grief and loss, difficult bosses, rebellious children, wayward spouses, painful divorces, crushed dreams, fender benders, mental illness, and minor inconveniences. Clearly, some of these things are worse, way worse than others. But they all wear on us. They all test our patience, and they can test our faith. And if Peter's challenging words concerning suffering are appropriate to the kinds of things his readers were dealing with. How much more appropriate are his words for us in the kind of suffering we endure today? Much lesser types of suffering. While God does not send suffering into our lives, in this week's passage and the next, Peter wants us to know that God can use suffering to shape us, to strengthen us into more Christ like people. Or, as uh, the 19th century German philosopher and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said, rather succinctly, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. I know many of you thought that was Kelly Clarkson, but it's not. <laughs> she and many others took it from Friedrich Nietzsche. That which does not kill us makes us stronger, or at least it can. So at the start this morning, I invite you to take, we're just all going to take 15 seconds, 15 seconds of silence. And I want you to think of some way you might currently, personally be suffering. And maybe it's you personally, or maybe it's someone you love and care for. You, you suffer indirectly too. It can be big and catastrophic and life-altering, or it can be small and seemingly insignificant, or anything in between. What might you be suffering right now in this moment? 15 seconds, just think about it. Over the past two weeks, chapter 3, verses 8 through 17, Peter has hit this idea of suffering for doing good, and he's hit it very hard. There is no mistaking his meaning, which he summed up back in verse 17 from last week. "'For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil.'" In verse 18, our passage today, he goes a step further by giving us Jesus as our example. Suffering for doing, be- doing good is better because that is exactly what Christ has done for us and it cost him dearly. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered the evil done to him because he chose to do good for us. Jesus is our example, our model By his death, Peter says, Jesus brought us to God. Jesus returned us to that relationship that God had with humanity back in the Garden of Eden. He did it by his death, but with this caveat, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus' resurrection does at least two things. It proves that everything Jesus said and did was true, and it promises us resurrection and final victory. It proves that everything Jesus said and did was true, and it promises us resurrection and victory in the end. As Andy Stanley said a few years ago, if a guy tells you he's going to die and rise again and he does it, you should do everything that guy says. For our purposes, if a guy tells us he's going to die and rise again and he does it, we should model our whole way of life After Jesus. Jesus is our example. Nothing else makes sense. If Jesus rose from the dead, we should model everything about our lives after him. But we're just getting started. Things are about to get weird. Maybe you heard it when you were listening to the scripture earlier. This is not only the strangest passage in all of 1 Peter, it may be the strangest passage in all of the New Testament. Verses 19 and 20. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently the days of Noah while the ark was being built. This is a strange passage. Uh, It will not surprise you that I've never preached on this passage before. That was intentional. The 14th century German reformer Martin Luther said this about these very verses... A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. None of us do! We really don't know for certain what Peter means. Who were these imprisoned spirits? And what does it mean that Jesus proclaimed something to him? Then what did he proclaim? So many questions. So there are, are several interpretations are variations on interpretations. They're very complex, very nuanced, but I'm going to narrow it down to three very basic positions on what Peter is talking about here. I'm borrowing these, uh, these phrases exactly from Scott McKnight. All of them are strange. <laughs> First, there is the descent into hell view. This is where the ancient church formed an idea known as the harrowing of hell. And there are many, many, you Google that phrase, harrowing of hell, and you will find many works of art down to the ages that display this Jesus liberating people from death and hell. This one is from the 8th century. In this idea, Jesus goes in the spirit between his death and his bodily resurrection. He breaks down the gates of hell. He proclaims the gospel to all those people who have died before they could hear it, and he liberates them. Here we see him pulling Adam and Eve out of hell. A second interpretation. The preexistent Christ view. That is, Christ, before being enfleshed and incarnated in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the pre existent Christ, preached to people through Noah as he was building the ark. Also strange. The third view, the triumphal proclamation over the spirit world view, which wins the title for longest title for a theme. The triumphant proclamation over the spirit world. More and more scholars are adopting this view in recent years. And in this view, the spirits that are imprisoned are identified as fall, the fallen angels that we actually encounter in Genesis chapter 6, where the story of Noah and the flood begins. So let's take a look at that. Genesis 6, 1 through 3. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married, literally took them as their wives, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal their days will be 120 years. We get very little information about who these sons of God were in Genesis. I mean, looked at the passage, uh, this very passage in Genesis, coincidentally one year ago this weekend, I stated that these sons of God may have been corrupt rulers and authorities, tyrants, or they may have been spiritual beings of some kind. There's different and I was non-committal. I didn't pick a side. I just said these are the ones that are out there. However, assuming that this third view is correct, Peter clearly understands the sons of God in Genesis as spiritual beings, fallen angels, and so did most of the people reading the letter. So in 2014, you may remember this, director Darren Aronofsky released the film Noah, starring Russell Crowe. The trailer for that, that film that year got a very warm reception, an enthusiastic reception, at the Global Leadership Summit at Willow Creek. I mean, they spent 30 minutes on this. However, when the film came, at, came, came out, there was so much backpedaling by Christian leaders that they almost caused a tidal wave. They did not want to be associated with this film because it was not a strictly biblical portrayal of Noah and the flood. And one of the reasons is because that film borrowed heavily from an ancient Jewish document known as First Enoch. And that book and its ideas were very popular in the time that Peter was writing his letter. So First Enoch takes those first few verses of Genesis 6 and runs with them. These sons of God are fallen angels known as watchers. And God punishes them. First, Enoch says that God imprisoned them in the depths of the earth. Aronofsky in his film portrays them as imprisoned in stone. So they look a bit like Rockbiter from The NeverEnding Story or Korg, Thor's friend from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Come on. There you go. This has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today, but I figured if you were about to nod off, this might get your attention. <laughs> and it's just fun to show things like this. The point for our purposes this morning, however, is that these, I, this idea of fallen angels and watchers this, this was very popular at the time. Peter may well have been drawing on this legend of the watchers to make his point. We might say, just to help you kind of uh, see how this all fits together, we might say that for first century Jewish people and Christians with a Jewish background, First Enoch was like the Left Behind series of novels in the mid-90s or Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness series of novels in the late 1980s or, wait for it, The Chosen. In the sense that People took these things in and began to think, well, this is biblical. This informs how we read the Bible. And even, just to, just to be clear, I like the chosen. I'm not bad-mouthing the chosen. I have issues with the other two things I mentioned, but I'm not bad-mouthing the chosen. But we can't take these things and import them in. And that's probably, I saw that happen in our culture, and I see it happening here in 1 Peter. Enoch was not the Bible but a lot of early Christians saw its view as biblical. It impacted the way people read certain passages in the Bible. However, while First Enoch had great influence on the early church, it fell out of favor rather quickly and eventually just sort of disappeared, at least in terms of its influence on theology in certain, in certain terms and of how 1 Peter uh, was understood. Today, however, scholars have come to see that its popularity at the time probably has something to teach us about what was going on and how we might read and understand what Peter is saying in this strange passage. According to this view of the watchers as the imprisoned spirits, Jesus is not preaching to them to convert them. He's not preaching to them that, uh, to, to, to win their salvation. He is proclaiming a universal truth to them. He is announcing something to them. So after noting that Jesus has proclaimed something to these imprisoned spirits, Peter quickly moves on to describe those who were saved from the flood. Verse 20, last part of verse 20. In it, in the flood, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. So now Peter is drawing more firmly on the biblical material Through the ark, eight people were saved. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Peter then draws a comparison between the water of the flood and the water of baptism. Just as the water of the flood carried Noah and his family to safety, so the waters of baptism carry us to safety. So in this way, the flood symbolizes or prefigures, some translations say, the waters of baptism. But baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body, Peter says, and he's likely, he doesn't mean when we take a bath. He likely is referring to uh, various cleansing, ritual cleansing practices that religions engaged in at that time. It's not about merely cleansing away moral dirt, he's saying, it's about the pledge of a good conscience toward God. The pledge of a good conscience toward God. That phrase, like several others in this passage is challenging to translate and interpret, but the interpretation that makes the best sense in this context is that for Peter, baptism is a sign of our pledge, of our intent, and of our commitment that what we proclaim in our baptism will become a reality in our lives. Baptism is a sign of our pledge, our intent, and our commitment that what we proclaim in our baptism will become a reality in our lives. Baptism and coming to faith in Christ are not only about our salvation and the promise of a final victory. They are about a way of life that is lived against the cultural tide. We are not merely carried to safety by the waters of baptism. We are transformed and ever-transforming. We seek to live differently than we did before, which is the reason... Peter's first readers were suffering in the first place. They are countercultural, And people don't like it. He's going to make this clear in next week's passage, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In the first part of verse 21, then, Peter says again that baptism saves us. But in the last part of that verse, he qualifies it a bit. It, by it, he means baptism and the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Peter refines his statement about baptism saving us. It is not the act of baptism that saves us. It is Jesus' victory over death, his resurrection. And our pledge, our intent, and our faith seals the deal. Jesus' death does the work of atonement, but it is Jesus' resurrection that vindicates his suffering, proves its effectiveness, and proclaims his victory. This is what Jesus proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits. His victory has ended the reign of sin and death. He is now at God's right hand, a place of power and glory and honor, and everything else is now in submission to him. Angels, fallen angels, imprisoned spirits, and all authorities and powers, human, systemic, governmental, and supernatural, all of them bow to Jesus. The very things that oppressed Peter's first readers and caused their suffering in the end will not win. Christ will win, and by his victory, we too will win. We already have. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we suffer. In the meantime, horrible, tragic, painful things happen on earth to us and to all humanity and to creation. In the meantime, we must certainly do whatever we can to limit suffering and to mitigate the pain of human misery and that done to creation. However, we will still suffer. Our victories are incomplete, So we must endure. But we endure knowing that God is with us and that Christ has won the victory already. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Of course, we must ask, what does it mean to fix our eyes on what is unseen? Sounds like nonsense. How do we see what is unseen? The challenge I find in preaching about suffering is knowing that for some of us now, and for all of us, likely at some time in our lives, suffering is not an abstract idea, it's reality. Clearly, over and over, Peter says, we need to be patient, we need to endure, we need to choose to suffer for doing good if it is God's will. Just in the past two weeks, I've encountered people, families who have suffered a great deal. Saying to them what Peter says to his audience feels inappropriate, even callous. What does it mean for them to fix their eyes on what is... Eternal and unseen. Well, first of all, the most eternal and unseen thing in all the universe is God. So we fix our eyes on God. And that for us begins with fixing our eyes on Christ Jesus. The late pastor and author Tim Keller, who only passed away a couple of weeks ago, said it this way. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is with you and for you. To fix our eyes on what is unseen is to train ourselves to see and understand and get to know at the core of our being that God is with us, that God is for us. And that our suffering is not always something we can or even should escape. Again, depending on what we're talking about. So before we go any further, I want us to back up to chapter 3, verse 17. Notice the verse from last week's passage. Peter adds an important qualifier. Maybe you caught it when I said it earlier. An important qualifier to his statements about suffering. 1 Peter three seventeen. For it is better, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If it is God's will. To say that we are to suffer for doing good if it is God's will is not to say that if given the opportunity, we shouldn't seek to lessen that suffering. To say that we should suffer for doing good is not to say that we shouldn't try to get out of it, that we shouldn't try to lessen the suffering. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul does just this. Just before he is about to be flogged by Roman soldiers, he asserts his rights. Verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? He's about to, be, he's about to suffer for doing good. He says, whoa, I have rights. He lessens his suffering. He decides on some level, this is not God's will. <laughs> if we can lessen our own suffering or that of others, we should do so. Besides, even getting out of an abusive relationship or a painful situation does not mean the suffering ends. We know that. The trauma continues. Recovery is ongoing. Finding a path forward can be painful. The suffering still there. In many of the situations that Peter lists as suffering for doing good, those who endured it simply had no choice but to stay with it. When we have the opportunity to lessen our suffering, and certainly the suffering of others, it is good and right to try to do so. We have options available to us that Peter's first readers did not have. Now, you and I often want to ask why. Why do we suffer? Why does God allow it? In all my years as a pastor... I have noticed that while people who suffer horrible, catastrophic things may wonder why this happened to them, ultimately there is no answer. Correct as that answer may be, there is no answer that's going to console them. We may want an answer, but what we need is God with us. We don't need theological proof. We need... God with us, God within us, God near us as we suffer. As the serenity prayer puts it, we need the serenity or the peacefulness to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. One of the ways we find the serenity, the courage, and the wisdom we need is in community with other sisters and brothers in Christ. Find others with whom you can share your suffering and pain and lean into them. And allow them to lean into you. This is one of the many benefits. You heard it in our prayer earlier of being a part of a life group. Our small group's been here at ECC, ministry here at ECC. We all need community. If you can't be a part of a life group now, find people that you can be with and share your suffering and pain and receive theirs. See, when we share life with one another, when we carry one another's burdens, serenity, courage, and wisdom will make themselves known. This too is what it means to fix our eyes on what is unseen and eternal, to gain an eternal perspective. Peter's point is that there will be a final victory when Christ reigns over all that has caused us to suffer in this life and that suffering will end in the meantime. Let us fix our eyes on what is not seen. Let us fix our eyes on what is eternal and let us do it with one another in community. All of this Reminds me of a well-known quote from Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That quote is actually an excellent paraphrase from another quote by Theodore Parker who said it more than a century before King developed his. And one of the Criticism of King's version is that his is too optimistic. How do, how do we know <laughs> that the arc of the moral universe does indeed bend towards justice? Isn't that, aren't we risking some sort of magical kind of thinking there? Just to say, yeah, well, it's all going to be okay. I, I don't think so. King has an eye on what is unseen and eternal. He knows, he knows that our light and momentary troubles will not last, that one day suffering of every stripe will end and that Christ will reign supreme over all of it, with angels, authorities, powers, and everything else in all creation, under submission to Him. Paul puts this this way, and uh, puts it this way in Philippians two. In our relationships with one another, he says, uh, he exhorts us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, and then he describes that mindset. And I think this applies in all sorts of situations. Uh, He's specifically talking about how we get along with one another, but it it, it, it applies everywhere. Just listen. This is Philippians 2, uh, last part of verse 5, all the way through verse 11. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. time of prayer and I want to invite you to begin again with a bit of silence and to take whatever that area of suffering you may have thought of earlier in the message just to take that in this time of silence hold it before God in silent prayer ask God for the peace to accept what cannot be changed for the courage to change what can be changed and the wisdom to know the difference let's go together to the Lord in silence and then I'll I'll close this in prayer God, we believe that Dr. King is correct. That the arc of the moral universe does indeed bend toward justice, your justice, your victory. And we ask, Lord God, that wherever we might be in these things personally right now, with our own suffering, God, would you grant us that peace that we need to accept things, that courage to change what can be changed, that wisdom to know the difference. Would you comfort us in our suffering? Would you make yourself known to us in personal and powerful ways? Would you uphold us, Lord God, and give us the vision to see the things that are unseen, to fix our eyes on what is eternal and good and beautiful and promised to us, Lord? Come, Lord Jesus. Speak to us. Encourage us. And draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.